Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Hillary Hendershot. Hillary is the founder of Hendershot Wealth Management, a leading financial advisory and wealth coaching firm for women and couples, where her mission is to motivate people to be financially empowered. Hillary was recognized as a top 40 under 40 entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, and in 2018, Avestapedia named her one of the top 100 most influential advisors in the U.S. Welcome to the podcast, Hillary. I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I was looking at uh, the information about you. I did a little research before the podcast, and you talk about how you're a fiduciary financial advisor. So for those people that don't know what that means, can you talk a little bit about that? Mm, yeah, we're getting right into the, the F word. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So historically, and the reason why most people have a negative impression of financial advisors, mostly there's a, you know, there's that, that mistrust that can be kind of the baseline place to start is because people who started calling themselves financial advisors, but what they were was actually Wall Street bank representatives. Mm. So folks who have an association with a bank brokerage or financial institution ultimately have a sales manager and a portfolio of proprietary products to sell you. And this explains why when most people go for a financial consultation, often they will get pitched an annuity product or a whole life product or some other commissioned product. And they come away kind of scratching their head and saying, I'm not exactly sure. I didn't get the advice that I needed. I don't have clarity. I, I'm not clear how much I should be saving. I just got pitched this expensive product. Right. And the reason really is because that's how they make money. So distinct from that are independent fiduciary advisors. I do not have a stagecoach in my office. I don't have a big Wall Street brand to hang my hat on. I had to build my brand myself. But the con that the the other the thing that I do get is I get to sleep well at night. I don't have any products to sell. I literally just get paid by my clients. I give the best advice I know how to give. Every piece of advice I give to a client is one I would follow myself or give to my own mother. And um, so that really makes a very clean way of doing business. It makes it so that my client relationships are very deep, trusting relationships and tend to last a long time. So maybe takes a bit longer to build your business that way. Although I do think that the term fiduciary is catching on. I myself have been a fiduciary for 20 years, my entire career, and nobody knew what the word even meant, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and obviously Wall Street has more marketing dollars than I do. So we're, we kind of climbed a wall of understanding and thanks for asking about that. And, and I'm proud to do business that way. That's great. Well, Hillary, you've really entered into this whole realm with a kind of a transformative story. It's not that you're just sitting back and, and wallowing in tons of money. I mean, you've had some challenges along the way, which really help you to connect with people who are in a similar boat, or at least are afraid they'll be in that boat. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what transformed your experience from, I, I know that you, you shared that you were 
at one point as a newlywed using your husband's credit cards and uh, oh that's a funny story <laughs> and, and in so, debt going from debt to to really financial freedom as you are now yes so let's let me take the husband credit card issue separately as I think <laughs> I shared that story as a funny on a couple of podcasts and it got in my opinion featured in the in a de- deceptive way okay. so um, so I shared as a in under the umbrella of open communication and relationships that my husband and I had an agreement that he would provide uh, our living expenses while I started my business and so we didn't what we didn't do was make an agreement of, uh, about how I would get money in my personal accounts so I was running low on money and I just started using his credit cards. And when I finally said to him, I'm just using your credit cards, he said, I know. So it wasn't that at that point, my debt and financial troubles were long behind me that he and I did have an agreement. And it was, it was just a kind of a funny uh, that got misrepresented possibly on social media. So let's rewind to what you're really asking about, which is yeah. my, my true financial troubles, which were deep and painful. Uh, I, I graduated from college with a degree in economics. I became a certified financial planner. And so I found myself a few years into my career sort of advising multimillionaires by day and going home at night to a stack of credit card bills that I would not open because I could not pay them. Wow. So I was a severe, not severe, but any type of overspending gets you, in, it's a chronic problem. You know, there's a big difference between earning $100 and spending 90 and earning $100 and spending 110. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had, car loans, I had credit card debt. And when the financial crisis came, I lost a portion of my income because I was working also as a mortgage lender. And that's a commission only position, right? So, um, so I kind of had to wipe the slate clean. And I, it became a very, uh, I, I held up the mirror <laughs> very intentionally. I said to myself, okay, I'm going to go down hard. This, it's obvious I'm going down hard, um, but it's not going to happen twice, right? I'm not going to do this in my life again. This isn't how my financial life is going to go. And so what I became a student of is money psychology. I just said, I'm going to figure out what is the difference between me who has great intentions and bad results and my friends and colleagues who have great intentions and great results. And what I learned is that uh, money psychology is a very is in my was in my case the thing creating my results that I had some broken messages and beliefs about money that I was manifesting in my life and I was able to rewire my brain really and when I was in the middle of that process I said to myself you know what if I can figure this out for myself I'm pretty sure I can figure it out I, like I can teach it Mm-hmm. And so I became kind of the financial advisor with compassion. I started mm-hmm. talking a lot about money psychology and your beliefs about money and created a coaching program for women who were kind of in my situation. Lot There's assets and income around you, but it's confusing. You can't figure out where it's all going or how to make more. And there doesn't seem to be as much in savings as you wish there would be, or you're afraid of or intimidated by the asset markets or the, the stock market. And, um, and that, so that really is in terms of bringing your life experience to your, your daily life, your profession, and being able to make an impact with it, I feel so blessed to have gone through that pain and turned it into something that's making a huge difference for people. I mean, we just last year, I ran this coaching program and we raised 11 women's net worth over a 24-month trajectory by $1.6 million. Mm. 
it was pretty dramatic. Yeah. 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 So it's like, I say to people, no matter where you are, I've been there or I know someone who has, I I don't have any judgments about past mistakes. And I'm just glad that I went through mine and my, it it was around my late twenties, early thirties, um, instead of, you know, 20 years after that. And, and some people are in that situation. It's, it's really unfortunate that we do such a bad job of financial education. Well, I mean, something you said really struck me. I wanted to circle back to that is really around money mindset and, and the fact that you talk about compassion because people tend to beat themselves up around money. We're surrounded by these messages that you should have this or, you know, shame on you for doing that. And uh, so you're really introducing a new element that I don't hear very often around the discussion of finances. I think that it's funny that you say that because it's everywhere, right? It's my, it's the world that I swim in. So it's very interesting for me to hear that in your, your viewpoint is still that you don't see that conversation often. And that's great. That's, that really lets me know that there's a lot more talking to do about it. (laughs) Um, The thing is about money is that we relate to money like it has some characteristics. It has fundamental traits that we can assign to it. And that's just not true. Money is a blank slate. Money doesn't actually exist. It's made up. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, it literally is a game that human beings agreed to play. And the only reason it still works is because we're all playing it. Yeah. Um, except for, and, except for um, the folks who are, are opting out with Bitcoin and that sort of thing. But that's Well, still- even they're still playing it. They're just using cur- their own currency. Oh, that's true. That's true. You know? Good point. Good point. <laughs> they're, they're just saying, I'm going to use currency that the federal government can't reach in my bank account and steal. However, if turns out if you lose your safe, uh, your password to your Bitcoin account, you lose it all anyway. So right. I'm not sure there's a, there's a hands-down advantage there. Right. But um, but, you know, like you'll hear people say things like money is the root of all evil or money doesn't grow on trees or there's never enough money or there's always enough money. And these are very poignant examples of the kind of scripting that we make up about money. None of those things are true about money. There are money's a blank slate. So there are bad people who do bad things with money and there are bad people who do bad things who have no money. It's not the money that's the precursor to the evil act. It's the human and, right. and vice versa, the good, the, the very virtuous act. Well, there's some right. kind of abdication of responsibility there when you start saying it's about the money. The money is what caused it rather than the person owning up to what they did or didn't do. Very good. But I, I completely agree. And I, you know, I, I, I think that it's very powerful to live a life of accountability and responsibility. I don't know how widespread it is, but it's very powerful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so what are some of the other things that go towards a healthy money mindset? And I know you, you focus mainly on working with women and I don't know, are there differences between the way women view money and the way men view money? And, and uh, what are some things that we can do to improve our mindsets around money? Well, it's like anything, it's a spectrum. So for any woman who has a particular experience or mindset about money, I'm sure there's a man who also has that same experience. It's just that there are trends. Men tend to be more data-oriented around money, more egoic. Women tend to feel like they don't belong in the investment markets. Um, we Men suffer from a cognitive bias called overconfidence. So what we know from the studies is that men think they're better at investing than they actually are. If you look at how women do in investing, women actually 
achieve a percentage point higher in return every year. You just mm. left to their own devices. That's interesting. I know it really is. And that, and it's because we're afraid, we're afraid to trade. So men buy in and they sell and they buy and they sell. And that tends to be that the exact wrong thing to do in an investment account. Women buy something and they just let it ride out of fear. I don't know what to trade into Hillary. So I'm just going to leave it in what I originally bought. Well, it turns out that's actually a better way to invest. So, um, I, so I like to work with women, although actually in my financial planning practice, it's women and couples. This coaching program that I run so far is only for women. And the thing that I like about working with women is because we do so well in groups. You get together, get a group of supportive women in a room together, and um, they're able to be so compassionate and so empathetic and so supportive of where you're at right now, but then you see yourself in other people. They're, they're able to hold up the mirror for you, not literally, but uh, figuratively, and, and they're, they're, there's a momentum that gets created. So I would say traditionally women are more disempowered around money, men are more empowered, but men make mistakes just like women do. Sure. Yeah, it's, I've always, it's always intrigued me to hear that, and I know it's... Um, there's certainly evidence for it that women are afraid of investment markets. That hasn't been my personal experience or that of my friends, but I don't know if it's just, I, and in fact, those women are even in their relationships are the ones who are more savvy investors. So um, it sounds like they're out of the, out of the norm. What did you say about relationships? The women even, who are married? Even, yeah. Even if they're in a relationship that, the men are the, not the ones who are managing the money. The women are the ones who are more actively involved in investing. Oh, it sounds to me like you're a particular kind of woman and that you attract that kind of woman. I guess and, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say that that's normal. I would, mm-hmm. in my, my experiences, that's maybe 10 to 15% of the population. So it's not, not way out in the fringe, um, but I definitely meet a category of women like that. And um, in fact, a lot of women who hire me have busy husbands and they, I use the term quarterback, they quarterback the money in the relationship. So they're the one who shows up to the meetings and has the conversations with me. So, mm-hmm. um, but then there's, there's, there's another kind of woman who um, is highly educated. Well, someone who was in my coaching program last year was actually a successful uh, pediatric dentist who uh, felt so intimidated by the conversation about money that someone came to her office to talk to her about the retirement plan that her business partners and she had set up. She asked a question and he laughed at her. He either laughed at her or patted her on the shoulder, kind of talked down to her. And she couldn't recover. She took her money out of the account, had massive amounts of money in cash when I met her. She said, I just can't, I, I can't bring myself to the table to have these conversations. I don't even know what questions to start asking and I'm unwilling to be laughed at again. Yeah. That's no, so she, she's obviously very smart. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's just a, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think, or an, a, another, a negative feedback spiral, something like that. Yeah. Well, you talk with people and work with them around developing confident financial actions. So, the, the, the realm that, um, I mean, this podcast focuses more on is, is the business aspect. So how, a couple of things I re- really popped out at me. One was successful negotiating, and the other one was money conversations with a partner, but I wonder if that can extend to a business partner, if you have any 
advice on those two topics. And there, I know they're big topics, both of them. Oh my, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with one. Let's start with successful negotiating. Sure. So, uh, and so let's decide what kind of negotiation we're in. Is this a business negotiation? Yeah. Let's say there's a negotiation going on around a potential joint venture, for example. Okay, great. So, so the first step to a successful financial conversation is always uh, to, to, um, empower yourself with confidence. So where I start with a lot of women, a lot of times is really just talking them up, just sort of pumping them up to get, have the courage to have the conversation powerfully in a negotiation. You want to be able, you want to do your homework. So if you're looking at a joint venture, you want to know what are the slack resources that I can afford and I'm willing to give to this endeavor and what do I want to get out of it? And how much am I willing to give this other person? So you have the opportunity to be fair and egalitarian about what you expect that person's contribution to be. But the most important thing about a negotiation is to have a range of outcomes that are acceptable to you. So you have a bottom and you have a top. And you know that range before you even start talking. Um, I do know that there are kinds of negotiations where you, you, I'll use the phrase zero-sum game. So people really try to get the most out of it possible. They really intend to disadvantage the other party to advantage themselves. Right. And I think that that's a, that's a personal choice. That's not, that's not how I choose to be, and it wouldn't be how I'd be interested in coaching someone. It's a valid way to negotiate. It may be our president's style. I don't know. But it's... It, but it's, but so let's leave that aside. Let's just say you come to the table and you want a fair outcome, but there is no definition of fair. So you get to decide what can I afford to put into this conversation, into this joint venture, and what do I want to get out of it? And um, I always say it's best if you let the other person try to let the other person uh, put a number down first. So just to get a sense of where they're at, because if you want a hundred and they offer five, you have a pretty good sense that you're not in the same ballpark, mm -hmm. right? This may be uh, we need to just walk away from this kind of conversation. And that's the other real key is that you need to not be afraid to walk away. Um, in fact, I would say it's a lot like playing Texas Hold'em. You walk away a lot more than you stay in. Um, and and you know, I mean, the situation may be different for you. You may have worked for years to come to the negotiations table with this person, or they may have an opportunity that's a one of a kind. But, and, and you'll hear real estate agents say this too, never get attached to a piece of property. As soon as you get attached to a house, you lose, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, because, it's hard to negotiate when you really want something because that takes paramount importance. It really is. And one thing I have said to folks in negotiations training is if you need it more, you lose. And it's okay. It's okay to need it more. I mean, at the beginning of our careers, especially if you're building your own business, you're kind of desperate for the clients, right? You're going to take any deal. You're going to go to the mat for it. You're going to work overtime. You're going to probably get paid less than you're worth. And then there comes a time when you get become less willing to do that, right? So in the beginning, you need it more. And you probably lose, although you win because you need to climb that ladder. And then there comes a time when you have enough success and enough momentum, enough people on the wait list that you say, okay, now my price is my price. So I know I kind of morphed there in terms of negotiating. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, 
to, in terms of our actual situation. But, um, but I think the real key is, is to know your range. I think that's really valuable because it's kind of sets the bar within yourself because otherwise you end up walking away feeling, why did I give that away? Or why, you know, why did I stay so strongly with, with this upper limit? And yeah. And it comes down to that money mindset, right there. So if you're an under earner, you're someone who for reasons, um, it, it comes down to a feeling of I don't deserve that or I'm not worth that. And then you're going to make that real in the way you negotiate. If you have a negative relationship with money and you have a scarcity mindset, you're not going to be confident in in looking for that upper number. And and that, But that can be altered. That's just a default way of being. But just note, if you're listening, that your negotiation style, untrained, un, unexamined, is a function of your money what I call your money operating system. So it all, it really all comes back to that. And you, Ursula, sound very empowered. It sounds to, I mean, you, you have a confident voice, you speak strongly, you have friends who are all confident around money. Um, you know, do you, you probably are, you probably are a confident negotiator. I, I know I'm turning the tables a little bit here. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, interestingly, I know it's, it's a great question because I, when I'm prepared, I can be and if I feel empowered in a situation, but if it's a scenario where I'm not very confident or it's new, then, then much less so. So it's helpful to oh, have good. guidelines yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. Well, um, the other scenario, and this is really related because this is really, negotiation is really about a conversation with the other person, but we touched on money conversations with a partner personal partner or business partner, mm, mm-hmm. what, are, what are the kinds of things that people should keep an eye out for? And is it different? I mean, other than the obvious scenario uh, or circumstances, um, is it a different way of approaching things? Sure. So I'll try to stick to the business partner because I know you have a business-related show. Sure. I think that if you're, let's say, let's say you and a friend, someone you've known for, for a long time, are talking about doing a business venture together. So it's not necessarily a purely business deal. And you're going to sit down and start to talk numbers. I do think it's important to understand where that person is coming from and their history with money. And this is even more important when you're in a a marriage or a a romantic financial partnership because um, um, so you can have, there tends to be the, we tend to think that the way we grew up about money is the way we should continue to be. Let me give you an example. Oh, Ursula, um, my parents always fought about money. I never want to fight about money. I just want to give you what you're worth and I just want to make a fair wage and take it home. I'm never going to fight about money. Well, that really is my past impacting my future. And And I, that belief or that indoctrination money operating system might lead me to negotiate poorly or to give up more than is fair. I mean, it could, right? When, and you also, but you have the opportunity to really improve that money belief. You don't have to have a financial life that's a reaction to the way your past was. I'll give you an example. In my own business, I was having salary conversations with one of my employees over email. 
And she had told me, obviously, we've talked about what our money scripts are, what our money backgrounds are, because I talk about it so much. And her belief about money is money is a tool. And I thought she was being so dry in our emails. I thought she was angry at me. I got really uncomfortable. And I had to pick up the phone and say, are you okay? Is this your, your replies to me are one and two sentences? We're talking about, you know, your compensation. And she said, I'm absolutely fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong, right? But I just didn't know that she was just being matter of fact. And that's how money is for her. It's matter of fact. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that way for me. I, I'm talking about her salary and I think she's emotionally involved in the conversation. And she's like, no, I'm just trying to get through my email. <laughs> <laughs> so me understanding her background would have helped in that situation. Mm. So if you can understand where your business partner is starting from, then you can have a little bit more compassion for, okay, this is how this negotiation is going. And then, you know, you, you sort of apply the same tools to, I think there comes to be a dynamic in the relationship about how much you, how much money, one person is going to be the spender, one person is going to be the Scrooge, right? One person is going to want to spend on marketing. The other one's going to want to spend on the team. Mm -hmm. And um, so you have the opportunity to cooperate and be flexible and talk about principles and values. And I mean, I think running a business is really fun. And, um, and I think that if you come to the table about money without any criticism or make wrong, that you'll have a much more productive experience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. No, those are, those are great, great ways of, of looking at it, Hillary. Um, what do you think are some of the mistakes that business owners make around managing their money? They don't pay themselves. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one. Uh, even... Even so, it's hard to pay yourself in the beginning. Everybody needs startup capital, and whether that's your credit card or your 401k or your husband or wife's salary, you are starting with nothing. And literally, business owners make something happen in the world that was not going to happen before. Business owners make magic, so it takes a bit to figure it out usually. And you have that inclination to put all the money back into the business. And then you go see your tax planner at the end of the year. And your tax planner says, oh, look, you're starting to have six figures, maybe high six figures of income. And I can't tell you the number of times I've had the CPA tell a client, well, you shouldn't pay yourself more than $50,000 a year. Why? Because you pay... Uh, the double payroll tax mm -hmm. on that amount. So if you put yourself on payroll for $50,000, then you can do profit distributions to yourself and only pay half the tax. So you save five or 6% in tax. Okay. But what the tax planner is not thinking about is the fact that you're not paying into the social security system. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then you retire at age 67. And instead of your friends who are bringing in 35 and $40,000 a year from social security, you're bringing in $10,000, $12,000 a year. Hmm. Well, it's too late to go talk to that tax planner, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, so I, that, I, I think that is really the biggest mistake that business owners make is not paying themselves enough. Um, I know I'm in the entrepreneurs organization and I know several seven figure business owners who don't even pay themselves six, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow. So, That's yeah, shocking. It, it's, 
it is shocking. And it's more shocking to me when business coaches don't say, you have got to pay yourself. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, what's the point? You're making all this money and it's going right back out. And people don't realize that you can have a seven, you can have an eight figure business. And if you're not taking money out of that business, paying tax on it and putting it in accounts that are in your name and hopefully investing it well, mm-hmm. you don't own any of it. Right. It could disappear tomorrow. It's not yours. That mm-hmm. business is a different entity, right? And so, yeah, don't let the tax tail wag the, the, the personal finance dog. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that, that people just get, uh, I mean, obviously, mistakes business owners make is a huge topic. So I'll just stick to the, the financial part. But I think that not, not understanding your core numbers, the ones that are most important to you, such as the cost of acquisition of a customer, lifetime value of a customer, you know, your profitability zone, what do you have to charge in order to make a profit? How much does it cost for you to run your business? You know, what are your, what are your ongoing costs? What are your variable costs? So that you know how to maximize profit, essentially. Profit if you're a sole proprietor or if you're the only owner of the LLC or C or S corp profit is your income. So you, you need to pay attention to those numbers. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be as complicated as people fear. I think that, um, I mean, even, um, experienced business owners sometimes have a bit of a mental shying away from looking at finances, but it's so valuable when you do, if you can have a framework to look at it, that keeps things simple and straightforward. Because otherwise, unless you're, uh, you know, a finance geek, it can really get intimidating. That's right. I think, and there are certain key numbers that are relevant in your business. So I shouldn't, I'm a financial services business. I shouldn't go sit with my friend who runs a product business and say, well, what numbers do you look at in your bookkeeping? I need to look at the numbers that are relevant to me and a good bookkeeper can help you do that. So you can figure out what are the numbers that shine a light on the health of your business. You know, we pay attention to um, how many client meetings have we had, how many prospective client meetings have we had. I consider that, I, I, I call that the lifeblood of the business. And because that's, that's new activity. And that wouldn't be the same for every business. But, mm-hmm. um, but I don't pay attention to every cash flow. I, I really don't pay attention to what this month's bills were but I do know my profitability every month. Mm-hmm. So just figure out those ratios, get yourself connected with a great bookkeeper, someone who can create reports that are valuable for you. And you don't have to understand them. I don't know how to run Quicken. I don't, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I would be lost. <laughs> well, uh, one of the things that uh, I saw on your website, you, you have a short video there. and One of the headers is, investing values. And it got me thinking it, in which you talk about what your values are in investing. And it, it got me thinking that in the same way that I encourage my clients to look at what, do you, what are your values around the way you want to do business, is there a benefit to people thinking about what are the values that you, you want to exercise in your investments and management of your money? Uh, so you're asking about investing values. I was, <laughs> you're asking about business values or investing values? <laughs> Sorry, that was kind of a roundabout way to answer the question, which was, um, is it helpful for people to think about what their values are when they sit down to establish, here's how I want to invest 
here's how I want to make use of my money. Absolutely. And here, here are the considerations that I think you as a prudent investor have to make. First of all, do I want to work with a fiduciary? Is it important to me that the person who's advising me doesn't have products to sell me? Okay. I think you know, you, if you ask yourself that question, you'll know whether your answer to that is yes, or it's really not that important to me. So then the second question is, do I want to be evidence-based? Do I want a person, do I want to work with an investment philosophy that is based on years of data or do I want to try to hit it out of the park? Am I going to gamble so that I can earn higher than market returns because I really, I really want that 20 or 30% return? Um, you know, there are venture capitalists who have built portfolios where they're only looking for 100x. Mm -hmm. That's what they're looking for. They, they take a lot of losses, but the, the good ones earn, earn out returns. Um, now, it's hard to get access to those kind of investments. As you can imagine, they're pretty exclusive. Right. But, you know, I would say that evidence base is probably the way to go. Um, I think that you, I think it would, I think probably you should stay away from trying to get into more details about investing. It's such a deep, deep body of knowledge that I'm not sure um, trying to decide before for doing your research or learning a little bit about what you're getting into would benefit you. And I do think that it's tempting to think about, oh, my values for the world. Should I integrate my values for the world into my investing portfolio? Mm -hmm. And that is a very complex topic. It is very, very difficult to do because everyone's values are different. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you start wanting a personalized, customized portfolio, you are talking about something that is massively, massively expensive. Mm -hmm. And the number one predictor of high returns is low costs. That's according to the Morningstar organization who puts out a star rating system who has had to admit publicly that their star rating system is not predictive of returns. Instead, the number one predictor of returns is low costs. <laughs> that, that is so interesting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, what are your thoughts on impact investing then with that perspective of, of... Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was touching on mm. is, is this idea of impact investing. I think that uh, there are a lot of smart people out there that are working very hard on it. I think that there are automated ways to do it that are sufficient and enough and as long as you're using computer models to screen out companies that are doing bad and screen in companies that are doing good, then you can still do that at a cost-effective, in a cost-effective way. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about funds that have three, four, five percent costs baked into them, no, I don't think that that's justified. Also, again, you get into these specialized areas of interest. Well, maybe you're interested in human, stopping human trafficking or global warming, or, you know, I don't want tobacco, sex, or firearms, right? And these are all individual interests. So again, the minute you start customizing your portfolio, mm -hmm. the, the cost just absolutely skyrocket. So I think it's a feel-good conversation right now, and I know it probably isn't... Um, it probably isn't what people maybe wanted to hear or expect to hear, but you... But the people who are out there talking about impact investing typically have an impact investing fund that they're trying to sell you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in my opinion, at this point, the customization and costs are just 
not, they're not justified for most people unless you have more than enough money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. <laughs> Thank you for that perspective. I, I haven't heard it from your point of view before. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Hillary, what, just one of the things we haven't touched on yet is really having a successful retirement. And um, I know that for women in particular, there can be periods of time when they're out of the workforce, when they lose uh, earning potential, possibly, and uh, with the kind of fears around investing. How can you plan for that under those kind of circumstances? Mm -hmm. So great question. And I will say a, lo- a three-decade retirement, which is what many of us are facing and need to plan for, is new on the planet. Yeah. So in the 1960s, when Social Security was passed, the full retirement age was 62. Average lifespan of an American was 65 years. Mm. So Social Security was never meant to carry people three decades. In, pa- in fact, people just weren't living that long. Right. So... So it's like a problem. Longevity is a wonderful blessing and it's also a financial problem. <laughs> so the, the real key is to get on a plan as soon as you can. And I, if you're listening and you have had a bad experience with investing, I promise you there are very elegant, very academic, very smart ways to invest that you can get plugged into. Most fiduciary advisors can uh, talk to you about that kind of investment portfolio that we are kind of the opposite of of what Wall Street does. And so I guess the, my core message about intimidation of the markets is like, it doesn't have to be that way. It, it, it's not always a fight and no, your money is not always at risk of of capital loss. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. The market goes up and the market goes down, but if you get the right portfolio, it always goes back up. That's right. the net of it. Yeah. So so the key is to get on a plan, and everybody doesn't have to have a financial advisor, obviously, but, um, but, if, but you want to both be growing your assets in a measured way and enjoying your life at the same time, but you want to understand, if I spend this much today on this couch, on this remodel, on this Lexus, how much is it impacting my future? And I really think that that, that clear opportunity cost is what most people are missing. Mm -hmm. And so to get yourself on a cash flow plan that's that detailed is really important. Uh, So you have an evidence-based investment investment portfolio that's working for you. You want to maximize your tax-deferred savings as often as you can. And I do know that there are a lot of women who step out of the workforce for years at a time. If you can, stay employed part-time, quarter-time, a tenth time, just to keep your, your resume current. That's really a way to make sure that you can get back in if and when you want to. You know, whether you can afford not to work is a function of your household income. So that's a customized question to be answered. And there are plenty of people who can afford not to work. So that advice doesn't apply to everybody. But the key is, and you want to understand as you approach retirement age, what happens if my investments fall in those years? Worse, what happens if I retire and the next three or four years is like a 2008 where the stock market lost 45% of its value? I need to have a plan B in place for that for that potential outcome, hmm. right? Um, because that's the, that's kind of the work, that's, 
kind of the worst retirement outcome. It's called sequence of returns risk. And so, but it is possible to plan around it. It is possible to recover from it. It's just a very mathematical problem to recover from. So, um, and then you want to understand the impact of your social security income, your future social security income. When do you claim that social security? So do you claim at 67? Do you wait to 71? What impact does that have? What's the recapture period on those three years that you didn't claim social security based on, you know, a 60 or 70% increased social security income check? It's a big increase, but three years without that check is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Um, so, and then to plan for what are what are going to be the likely costs of healthcare during retirement, and that really is the big unknown right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that healthcare costs are trending a particular way in this country, but that we don't know everything. Right. Um, interestingly, everyone's planning for tax rates to go up. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act happened last year. And for most people, marginal tax brackets went down. Right. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks tax taxes are going up. But for most people, tax brackets went down. Very interesting. Um, and then you have the opportunity to consider things like Roth IRA conversions so that your earnings and income are tax free in the future. You really have the opportunity to control your tax situation. Uh, so if you have money in an IRA, it's going to be taxable, ordinary income when it comes out. If it's in a Roth IRA, it's not taxed at all when it comes out. And if it's in a brokerage account, you pay capital gains on the growth. So there's a whole bunch of ways that you can be very creative about how much tax am I actually going to pay this year. Mm-hmm. So um, ultimately, you get on a plan for a successful, happy, healthy retirement. And then you have to check back in with the plan every year, right? Because whatever happens in the market is what happens. So we adjust to reality. How much did you spend? How much did you say you'd spend versus how much did you spend? And how much were we hoping the market would return versus how much did it? And are we off track, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I would say the most successful people financially are very clear about the, the, amount of money that they need on an annual basis to live a happy life, right? So you have this needs versus wants conversation. Our mortgage, our cars, our insurance, that's a need. The trip on the Riviera, that's a want. So we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're able and willing to be flexible about when we take that cruise on the Riviera in order to preserve our financial health. Mm-hmm. And I have seen people, you know, I've, I've seen people make the choice, well, we understand, Hillary, what you're saying is that right now we're spending too much and we're going to outlive our money and we're not going to do anything about that. I don't quite understand that choice, but at least it's an empowered choice. They're making it knowingly. Right. So if you, obviously, if you want that confidence and peace of mind that your money is going to outlive you, um, you have the opportunity to do that. It just, it just takes knowing and being willing to be flexible and nimble. So uh, one big message I'm getting out of what you just talked about around retirement is awareness and really being conscious of the opportunities you have and the choices that you're making. I think so. I I say to people in our first conversations, you know, everything in financial planning comes down to one number and that's how much you spend every year. And there's how much you spend default. So without being aware of it. And then once you're aware of it, how much do you decrease that number by? Um, I know I've got folks who are spending $300,000 a year and they're, they're saying, no, 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 Hillary, I'm not spending that much. I'm not spending that much. But 
but you are. I'm looking at your bank accounts. <laughs> and, um, and so then they go on, you know, they, they go on this existential journey. Well, how little can we spend? This isn't working. I can't afford to retire on that. Right. right? And so, so it really, I mean, it's like anything. You go through all the complexity of a field of study and you come out on the other side and it's very simple. Mm-hmm. It's about how much you spend versus how much you save. So it's good to have those conversations. So, yeah. Well, the way I always wrap up these interviews is with a rapid round of three questions. So are you, are you ready for those? Let's do it. All right. First one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? I learned that every day I have an impact, that I am so blessed that I was able to form an entity to to go out and create a brand and a mission in the world that is all about having impact, that who I am for women and for my clients is that they live with enough, that they live free, abundant lives, and that I can only spend my time getting better at making that impact. But I think that there's this big conversation right now about living on your purpose and making an impact. And most of us are making an impact every single day, mm-hmm. but you have the opportunity to declare what you want that impact to be and then fulfill on it. And, you know, you can try things and fail. You don't have to finish with what you started with. If, if what you really want is to make a difference, you can do that now today. Mm-hmm. And, and that's beautiful. It's, yeah, it's a really blessed life. Yeah. That's great. Well, the second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? I declare what I intend to fulfill on, and then Mm. I do my darndest to do it. So my declarations and intentions are everywhere. I tell my team, it's up on the wall. We have quarterly and annual meetings about it. I talk to my husband about it. I talk to my clients about it. I just I, I use my words and, and then of course my integrity. So if I'm declaring that I'm going to fulfill on something and then I take no actions that are aligned with that declaration, well, then I kind of look like a, I don't know, someone who can't be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I, love that, I love that declaration word. That's a great way of, of yeah. indicating a, a force of willingness behind it. So yeah, that's great. It's very powerful. Yeah. Well, the last question is, what's one insight that you've had or a piece of advice that you'd want to offer to someone who's saying, I want to have impact, I want to positively contribute? I really think it is some combination of my answer to question one and question two, which Hmm. is that I I promise you, unless you're sitting in a room with four walls and no windows, you're, you're having some kind of impact, right? That you have the opportunity to declare any impact that you can go make a big declaration or a big promise. You can go get involved with the Girl Scouts of America. You can go, whatever it is that is the thing for you, you can start now and you can start small. And that learning comes along the way. I've made terrible mistakes and leave. I've left them in the past. It's like, okay, I'm learning. <laughs> I really am cutting my teeth on this thing. And and I think that we all have the opportunity to do the things in life that we most want to do. 
That's great. Well, Hillary, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I think these money conversations are so valuable for people in raising our awareness and the ideas and, and strategies that you offered are really going to be great food for thought for people. So thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you for having me. So if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Sure. My main website is hillaryhendershot.com and Hillary has one L and Hendershot has two T's. Uh, if you'd like to find out about the coaching program, it's 50kwealthmultiplier.com. And then if you just want to check out a podcast on women and money, come check out Profit Boss Radio wherever you find your podcast. if you have room in your podcast playlist. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, Hillary, thank you for the work you're doing in the world. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.